Only under the blood is there safety. Sixth, the imperfection of her faith. This appears in the reply which she returned to the king of Jericho, recorded in Joshua 2, verses 3 to 5, when he sent unto Rahab, requesting her to deliver up the two spies. Fearful of their lives, she told lies, pretending she knew not whence the men had come, and affirming they were no longer in her house. Such a procedure on her part can by no means be justified, for her answer was contrary unto the known truth. The course she followed resembles the direction which Rebekah gave to her son Jacob. In the general, her intent was the fruit of great faith, for it had respect unto the promise of God. Genesis 25, verse 33. But in various details, Genesis 27, 6 and 7 and so forth, it can in no wise be approved. The Lord in His tender mercy is pleased to pass by many of the infirmities of His children when He sees an upright heart and a desire to accomplish His promises. If Thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Psalm 130, verse 3. God bears with much weakness, especially in the lambs of His flock. Thomas Manton wrote, I observe there was a mixture of infirmity in this act, an officious lie which cannot be excused, though God in mercy pardoned it. This is not for our imitation, yet it is for our instruction, and it shows us this, that faith in the beginning hath many weaknesses. Those that have faith do not altogether act out of faith, but there is somewhat of the flesh mingled with that of the Spirit. But this is passed by out of God's indulgence. He accepteth us notwithstanding our sin before faith, and notwithstanding our weakness in believing. Before faith she was a harlot. In believing she makes a lie. God doth reward the good of our actions and pardons the evil of them, not to encourage us in the sinning, but to raise our love to Him who forgives us so great a debt, receives us graciously, and pardons our manifold weaknesses. Unquote. It is blessed to see that neither in our text nor in James 2.25 does the Holy Spirit make any reference unto Rahab's failure. Instead, in both places, He mentions that which was praiseworthy, and to her credit, it is the very opposite with the malevolent world, which is ever ready to overlook the good and reflect only upon the evil of an action performed by a child of God. It is the gracious spirit which throws the mantle of charity over the deformities and defects in a brother or sister in Christ, as it is honoring to God to dwell upon that which His Holy Spirit has wrought in them. If we were quicker to judge ourselves for our own sad failures, we would not be so ready to blaze abroad the faults of our fellows. Let each of us seek grace to heed that exhortation, whatsoever things are true, 
Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, think on these things. Philippians 4, verse 8. Seventh, the reward of her faith. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. Hebrews 11.31 The historical account of this is to be found in Joshua 6.22 and 23. But Joshua had said unto the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and bring out thence the woman and all that she hath, as ye swear unto her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother, and her brethren, and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred, and left them without the camp of Israel. Not only was Rahab and the whole of her family preserved from the burning of Jericho, which immediately followed, but as Joshua 6.25 tells us, she dwelt in Israel. Thus, from being the slave of Satan, she was adopted into the family of God. From being a citizen of heathen Jericho, she was given a place in the congregation of the Lord. Nor was that all. Later, she became the honored wife of a prince in Judah, the mother of Boaz and one of the grandmothers of David. Her name is inscribed upon the imperishable scroll of sacred history. It is recorded in Matthew 1 among the ancestresses of the Savior. She was one of the mothers of Jesus. From what depths of sin and shame did sovereign grace deliver this poor woman? To what a height of honor and dignity did sovereign grace elevate her? Truly, the rewards of faith are most excellent and glorious. Chapter 23 The Faith of Judges Hebrews 11 verse 32 In some respects, the verse we have now arrived at is the most difficult one in our chapter. It commences the last division of the same. Therein, the Apostle changes his method of treatment and instead of particularizing individual examples of faith, he groups together a number of men and summarizes the actings of their faith. The selection made out of many others who could have been given is most startling. Those whose names we might have expected had been registered on this honor roll are omitted while others we have never thought of are given a place. The order in which they are recorded seems strange, for it is not that of the chronological. This has puzzled some, one eminent commentator stating, the apostle does not observe strict order, reciting them in haste, which is not to be allowed for a moment, for it ignores the superintending guidance of the Holy Spirit. Again, the prodigies performed by these men cannot be presented for our emulation. Why then are they referred to? The principle of guidance in the selection of some of the men here mentioned is obviously 
that of sovereign grace. No otherwise can we account for the passing over of such illustrious characters as Caleb and Deborah, Hannah and Asaph, and the inclusion of Jephthah and Samson. In the latter, the free favor of God was more conspicuously displayed. The order in which they are mentioned is not that of time, but of dignity. For Barak lived before Gideon, Jephthah before Samson, and Samuel before David. God reckons those most excellent who bring forth the best fruits of faith. The more we excel in faith, the more God will honor us. Where faith shines the brightest, the least are accounted the greatest, and the last becomes first. Then how we should labor daily for an increase of faith. Five of the six men named in our text were judges who ruled over Israel, though they came from very humble callings. From this we may learn that faith is a spiritual grace suited not only unto the temple, but also to the judicial branch and throne, that it is needed not only by those who occupy positions in the private walks of life, but also by those who fill public office. Governors equally with the governed require to have a true faith in the living God. Instead of disqualifying them for the discharge of their important duties, it would be of inestimable value to them enabling them to face difficulties and dangers with calmness, inspiring with courage, endowing with wisdom, and preserving from many temptations which confront those in high places. He who is blessed with his spiritual faith will have lowly thoughts of himself, as had Barak, Gideon, and David. Remarkable achievements are credited to men whose names are now before us, as we read the historical account of them in the book of Judges, we may well marvel at them, but it is only as we view them in the light of what is said here in Hebrews 11 that we shall understand them aright. Other men besides these have vanquished lions, put armies to flight, and subdued kingdoms, yet their deeds proceeded from a very different principle. The mighty works of men chronicled in the Old Testament are given for a far higher purpose than the indulging of our love of the sensational. The exploits of Gideon and Barak, Samson and David are only recorded in Holy Writ as they were wrought by faith. Thus the Holy Spirit honors his own work. One prominent feature which distinguishes many of the extraordinary performances of men of God set down in Scripture from the prodigies done by men of the world is that the Holy Spirit moved the sacred historians to faithfully register the infirmities under which faith so often wrought and the weakness which preceded it. The faith of these men was very far from being perfect either in degree, stability, or unmixed purity. Like ours so often is, their faith was mingled with fear, oppressed by unbelief, hard beset by carnal reasonings. We have only to read through the sixth chapter of Judges 
to see that the faith of the first one named in our text was painfully slow in exercise, though by grace, it was afterward mighty in execution. They were men of like passions with us, and from that fact we may take comfort, not in sheltering behind the same, but by refusing to despair when our faith is at a low ebb. One thing which is common to all the individuals mentioned in our text is that the history of each of them was cast in a day of great spiritual declension. The time in which they lived is described at length in the book of Judges. Following the death of Moses and Joshua, Israel grievously departed from the Lord, cast off his law, worshipped the idols of the heathen, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. 21 verse 25 Darkness covered the earth, and gross darkness the people. Yet, even in those days, God left not himself without witness. Inexpressibly blessed is it to behold the faith of individuals shining in the midst of a failed testimony, that here and there was a lamp maintained, illuminating the surrounding darkness. Nor is the number here specified without significance, for to the six individuals mentioned are linked the prophets, who also ministered in seasons of apostasy, making seven in all, telling of the completeness of the provision made by the grace of God. Thus we may see how that Hebrews 11, which describes at length the life of faith, would have been incomplete had no notice been taken of those times when Israel so grievously departed from God. It was during seasons of great spiritual darkness and gloom that faith wrought many of its mightiest works and achieved some of its most notable victories. For faith is not dependent on favorable outward conditions. It is sustained and energized by one who is infinitely superior to all circumstances. What is mentioned in our text and the verses which immediately follow are recorded for our encouragement. We too are living in a day when Christendom is in a sad state, when there is widespread departure from God and His Word, when vital and practical holiness is at a low ebb. But the arm of the Lord is not waxed short, and they who lean upon it shall be sustained and enabled to do exploits in His name. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel, and of the prophets. Hebrews 11.32 The apostle had already given abundant proof that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, verse 1, and had shown that by it, the elders obtained a good report, verse 2. Yet he had by no means said all which might be given on the subject. Numerous and notable examples of the power and fruits of faith had been advanced, and many others might still be cited. 
but it would not be convenient to enumerate each instance of faith recorded in the Old Testament. To have done so would extend the epistle beyond due limits. So, we now have a bare mention of the names of others, followed by a description in general terms of the effects of their faith. The characters which we are now to contemplate, like the apostles of Christ, and in smaller measure the reformers at the close of the Dark Ages, were extraordinary men, specially raised up by God in times of crisis, for the good of His Church and the benefit of the commonwealth. This needs to be carefully borne in mind, or otherwise we shall view them in a false perspective. Their calling was extraordinary, and so were their performances. They were endowed with uncommon powers and supernaturally energized for their particular tasks. That which distinguished them from men like Caesar, Charlemagne, and Napoleon was that they were men of faith. It is not that the apostle by any means commends all that they did, or that he excuses their manifold imperfections, which cannot be vindicated. He makes mention here only of their faith. Gideon was raised up by God at a time when Israel's fortunes were sunk to a low ebb. Three judges had preceded him, delivering the people of God from the hand of their enemies. But a fourth time they had apostatized, and now they were groaning under the servitude of the Midianites. So great was the number of those who had invaded their territory that they left no sustenance for Israel, and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. Judges 6, verses 4 and 6. But that was not the worst. The worship of Baal prevailed to such an extent among the favored covenant people of God that to oppose it was considered a criminal act deserving of death. Judges 6, verses 28 to 30. Nevertheless, God had promised the Lord shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone. Deuteronomy 32, 36. And now, once again, he was about to make good his word. To be delivered from the dire situation which now faced Israel called for a mighty man of valor and such was Gideon, as we learn from the language in which the angel of the Lord first addressed him. Judges 6, verse 12. But something more than natural courage and daring was required in the one whom the Lord would employ. He must be an humble man of God, that the glory might redound unto him alone. In order to that, the instrument had first to be prepared for the task to be performed. The servant fitted for the service he must do. E.W. Bullinger said, God must first do his work with Gideon before Gideon could do his work for God. To accomplish this, God makes the wine press of Joash to be to Gideon what he makes the backside of the desert to be to Moses. Unquote. The servant of God must first be made to feel his weakness before he is taught that all sufficient strength is available for him in the Lord. Thus it was with Gideon, 
Thus it is too. It is blessed to observe the Lord's dealing with Gideon. He now said, The Lord is with me. Judges 6.12 This was to exercise his heart, which is ever the prime requisite. Aroused, Gideon inquired, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of? And so forth. Verse 13 Second, the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Verse 14 It is at this point so many interpreters go astray in their understanding of this incident. The saint's might is in realized helplessness. For when I am weak, then am I strong. 1 Corinthians 12.10 That word of Jehovah's was designed to bring Gideon to the consciousness of his own utter inability to deliver Israel from the yoke of the Midianites. The instrument must be experimentally fitted ere the Lord will employ it in His service. And the first part of this fitting process is to empty it of self-sufficiency, that it may then be thoroughly dependent upon Himself. Gideon's might consisted in conscious weakness, and as soon as that was realized, he would be forced to believe the Lord's declaration, Thou shalt save Israel. That was the word addressed to his heart, and was the foundation on which his faith was to rest. Gideon now asked, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Judges 6.15 The divine arrow had hit its mark, as Gideon's humble confession attests. The Lord has only one response unto acknowledged helplessness. Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Verse 16. How blessed! When faith truly realizes this, it exclaims, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4.13 From that assuring word of the Almighty, Gideon knew that he had found grace in his sight and asked for a sign. Again, Bollinger said, Not because he doubted, but because he believed, not to prove the truth of Jehovah's word, but because he would prove the truth of Jehovah's grace in the acceptance of his offerings, which he proposed to go and fetch. Verses 17 and 18. Unquote. Next, Gideon prepared and presented his offering, verse 19, and was bidden to place the same upon a rock, verse 20. This was followed by a miracle, fire issuing from the rock and consuming the offering by which he obtained witness that he had found grace in Jehovah's sight. The supernatural fire denoting his acceptance with God, filling him with awe and terror, immediately the Lord quietened his heart with, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die, verse 23. 
Thus did he receive Jehovah's blessing. That Gideon's faith laid hold of that benediction is very evident from the next verse. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord, and called it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord send peace. The heart of Gideon being now fitted and established, God gave him his first commission. Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock, in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Verses 25 and 26. Such definiteness of language at once evidenced to Gideon that he had to do with one who knew everything, the bullocks his father had and their very ages. Like his father Abraham, Gideon believed God and obeyed his command, for we read that then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him, and so it was, because he feared his father's household and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. Verse 27. At this distant date, his action may seem to us trivial, but the sequel shows that Gideon acted at the imminent peril of his life. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring out thy son, that he may die, because he hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. Verse 30. The immediate sequel supplied a much more severe testing of Gideon. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 33. Enraged at the overthrow of the altar of Baal, the Midianites gathered their forces together and with their allies came up against Israel for battle. It is to be expected that Satan will wax furious when his territory is invaded and the Lord is magnified in the place where he reigned supreme. That is why it so often follows that when a Christian has done his duty, it seems as though he has only made bad matters worse by increasing his troubles. Then it is that he is sorely tempted to regret he has been so radical in his conduct and to effect a compromise. Such a temptation is to be steadfastly resisted. More, the increasing troubles which faithfulness brings upon him are to be regarded as a golden opportunity for further exercises and acts of faith. Thus Gideon acted, and so should we. We cannot now enter into a detailed comment upon the response made by Gideon to the open menace of the Midianites and all that is recorded of him in Judges 6-8, to but we commend those chapters unto the careful pondering of the reader. Let him carefully note first that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, chapter 6, verse 34, which supplies the key to all that follows. 
safeguarding the glory of God, preventing us from ascribing the honor to Gideon, and furnishing the vital word of instruction for our own hearts. We cannot overcome Satan nor refuse his temptation in our own strength. We cannot increase faith or even maintain it and exercise by any resolution of mind or act of our own will. We cannot achieve victories to the praise of our God by our own faithfulness. It is only as we are strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit in the inner man that we are furnished for the battle against the forces of evil. And that strength is to be definitely, diligently, and trustfully sought. The infirmities of Gideon appear in that he imagined he must head a large army if the Midianites were to be vanquished. It was little by little that his heart was instructed, and the lesson was learned that God is not dependent upon numbers. His repeated request for confirmatory signs, chapter 6, verses 36 to 40, also shows us that it is not all at once the saint learns to walk by faith and not by sight. But the Lord is long-suffering to usward and bears with our infirmities when the heart is truly upright before him. He granted Gideon the signs requested, though that is no guarantee he will do so for us. And he corrected his notion that a large force was needed only a small fragment was employed. By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you. Chapter 7, verse 7 Then, when Gideon believed the Lord and obeyed his orders, this word was given, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. Chapter 7, verse 9 Which was completely verified in the sequel. Thus did the Lord use and work mightily by one who was poor and little in his own eyes. 6 verse 15 And who did as the Lord had said unto him. 6 verse 27 Barak Time or space fails us to enter to a full consideration of his history and exploits, so we must condense. Barak was raised up by God near the close of the twenty years when Jabin, king of Canaan, mightily oppressed the children of Israel. Judges 4 verse 3 Deborah was acting as judge at that time, proof of the terribly low state into which the covenant people had fallen. Compare Isaiah 3 verse 12 Though she was not a judge in the proper sense of the term, See chapter 4, verse 4, and carefully compare chapter 2, verse 18, but a prophetess, and therefore a mouthpiece of God. It was through her that the Lord spake to Barak, saying, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee to the river Kaishan Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. Judges 4, verses 6 and 7. That was to be the ground of Barak's faith, 
That was the sure promise which described the thing to be hoped for. The infirmity of Barak is seen in chapter 4 verse 8, but the obedience of his faith appears in 4 verse 10. A further word was given to him, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? Chapter 4 verse 14 He heard, believed, and obeyed, and a great victory was secured. It was by faith in God's promise that Barak went forth against the enormous army of Sisera and vanquished the same. Samson Many mighty deeds are recorded of him in the book of Judges, such as his rending to pieces a lion as though it had been a kid, his slaying of a thousand Philistines single-handed with the jawbone of an ass, his carrying of the gates of Gaza and their posts on his shoulders up a steep hill, his bursting asunder the strongest cords when bound by his enemies, his overturning the pillars on which stood the great temple of Dagon. How then did Samson perform these prodigies? By faith. In the Old Testament it is said, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, but that does not mean he was involuntarily impelled by a divine power, like a hurricane carries things through the air blindly and unwittingly. No, the Spirit deals with men not as stocks and stones, but as moral agents, enlightening their minds, controlling their hearts, inclining their wills, and supplying physical strength for whatever task God allots. Faith cometh by hearing. And in Samson's case, he heard through his parents the promise which God had made concerning him. He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Judges 13.5 The strength of his mother's faith comes out beautifully in chapter 13, verse 23, where, quieting the fears of her husband, she said, If the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a bird offering and a meat offering at our hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would, as at this time, have told us such things as these. Brought up in the strong faith of his parents, Samson believed what he heard from God through them, grew up in the confidence of the same, and conducted himself accordingly. His last act was his greatest and best, furnishing the strongest evidence of his faith in God and being of most profit to his church. After being so sorely chastened for his sins and considering the situation he was then in, it called for no ordinary confidence in the Lord to do what is recorded in Judges 16, verses 28 to 30. Jephthah by calling, Gideon was a farmer, Barak a soldier, Samson a religious Nazarite, while David was the youngest of his family and despised by his brethren. Samuel was first used by God while still a child. Thus, we may see how God delights to use lowly and weak instruments. But more striking still is the case now before us. Jephthah 
was one of dishonorable birth, a bastard. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, which the law excluded from the congregation of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23, 2. Yet God, in an especial and extraordinary manner, conferred His Spirit upon Jephthah and advanced him to the highest dignity and function amongst his people, and prospered him exceedingly. From this we may learn that no outward condition, be it ever so base, can serve as a hindrance to God's grace. That he was a man who feared the Lord is clear from Judges 11, 9 and 10. His message to the king of Ammon, chapter 11, 14 to 27, shows that he believed what was recorded in the scripture of truth. He ascribed Israel's victories to the Lord, verses 21 and 23, and called on him to judge between Israel and Ammon, verse 27. And Jehovah rewarded his faith by delivering the Ammonites into his hand. His fidelity and perseverance in the faith is seen in the keeping of his vow of banning his daughter to continual virginity. David There is little need for us to attempt here an enumeration of the many works and fruits of his faith, nor to point out how often unbelief wrought within and through him. We agree with John Brown that it is likely the Holy Spirit has particular reference in our text unto David's victorious combat with Goliath, when quite a youth and totally inexperienced in the arts and guiles of warfare, armed only with a sling and a few pebbles, he engaged in open fight the mighty giant of the Philistines, who was a veteran in the field and heavily armed for the duel. How are we to explain David's temerity and success? In this way, he had received a revelation from God, as 1 Samuel 17:46 and 47 plainly intimates. He rested on the same with implicit confidence and acted accordingly. By faith he ventured, by faith he overcame. Samuel John Brown said, The event to which we are disposed to think it most probable, from its miraculous character, that the Apostle refers, is that recorded in 1 Samuel 12, verses 16 to 18. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. A revelation was made to Samuel that the divine power was to be put forth in connection with certain words which he spoke. He believed that revelation, he spoke the words, and the event followed. End of quote. The prophets, they too exemplified the power of faith, both in what they did and in what they suffered. By faith they were enabled 
to achieve and endure what otherwise they could not have achieved or endured. They delivered nothing but what they received, hence the frequency of their announcement. Thus saith the Lord. They concealed nothing they had received, though it was a burden to them, Malachi 1 verse 1 and so forth, and though they knew full well their message would be most unpalatable, they faithfully delivered the word of God. They were undaunted by the people's opposition, setting their face as a flint, Ezekiel 3 verses 8 and 9. They humbly submitted to God's requirements, Isaiah 20 verse 3, Jeremiah 27 2, Ezekiel 4 verses 11 and 12. They wrought mighty works, especially Elijah and Elisha. All these things manifested the efficacy and might of a real faith in the living God. Lord, increase our faith. Chapter 24 The Achievements of Faith Hebrews 11 verses 33 and 34 True faith performs a prominent part in all experimental godliness. Where there is a total absence of the grace of faith, a man is without God and without hope in this world. But where that spiritual principle exists, if only in the very small degree, there has taken place a wondrous and miraculous change. The one who is the subject of it may not, for a time, understand its nature, but instead make the greatest mistakes about it. Nevertheless, that change is no less than one of passing from death unto life. If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, Matthew 17.20, that little grain has a principle of life in it and contains in embryo the future plant. So with the implanting of the principle of grace in the heart, it will yet develop into, or rather be consummated in glory. It behooves each one of us to take diligent pains in ascertaining the origin of our faith. There are various kinds of faith spoken of in the scriptures. There is a dead faith, a demon's faith, a fancied and forced faith, a creature and presumptuous faith, all of which are to be dreaded, for they come not from above. But spiritual faith is divine in its origin. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2 verse 8. True faith is no offspring of nature, but has a celestial birth. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. James 1 verse 27 Spiritual faith is the heart's persuasion of the truth of God, and is produced in us by the almighty creative power of the Holy Spirit when He applies the Word in life-giving energy to the soul. Now, this faith is not only divinely communicated, but it is divinely sustained Spiritual faith is neither self-sustained nor man-sustained. It does not support itself, nor does its possessor support it. It depends entirely upon God. Alas, 
Alas, the faith of the vast majority of professing Christians, instead of being of this self-helpless nature, fills them with a deceiving self-ability. Nothing is so dependent upon God and Christ, nothing so utterly unable to live without the Spirit's supporting power as that faith which He Himself produces in the heart. But the faith of multitudes today is of a totally different nature, and we might accommodate and apply to them those words of Paul's, Now ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8, but without the Spirit. This faith is not only divinely given and divinely sustained, but it is also divinely energized. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.